stand up, Foreman, stand up, and look at him and say, you are guilty of every charge. Here's a body. Then you look over here and you say, oh my God, there's another body. And then you go back over here and you find skeletal remains. He should never be put back into a free society. I believe him to be a very dangerous man. There was evidence, even a confession, but Knoxville's first known serial killer case will always remain unsolved. I'm Leslie Ackerson. And I'm John North, and this is Appalachian Unsolved, the podcast. The Zoo Man. It kind of sounds like we're talking about an urban legend, but this is a name that people would come to know back in the 90s after a killing spree in Knoxville. It all started kind of spooky. Halloween week, 1992, leading up to Halloween, this wooded area off of a road called Cahaba Lane. It was kind of a dead end right beside the interstate. The closest thing was a church on the hill. A man goes walking and finds a body. Leslie, it's all kind of dark and creepy. As you said, Tom Husky, the suspect, is kind of a dark, scary-looking guy, kind of a wolfman-looking guy who uh, has a long association with the Knoxville Zoo, both through himself and his father. And then you have the murder scene, which is this remote place. It's almost like if you're out there, nobody can hear you scream. A church sits on top of this hill on Cahaba Lane, but below it, a few hundred yards away, police are searching for clues into the deaths of four women found dumped in the woods. And we took a trip out there. We got to go <laughs> right. with the former cold case investigator, David Davenport. And it is pretty eerie out there. It is pretty quiet and, and stark and empty. So they find this body, October of 1992. And, you know, the whole place is flooded with police, investigators. We see it in our old TV video. And after they find one body, a couple more start to turn up. It's like you go over here and here's, here's a body. Then you look over here and you say, oh my God, there's another body. And then you go back over here and you find skeletal remains. It's kind of the ultimate uh, horror story if you're a cop. You uh, find one body and then you start sort of shuffling around. You bring the dogs out and that leads to another. To picture this place, it was basically sort of a lover's lane slash drug using place, heavily wooded with a lot of trash. So once they started stirring around, they actually ended up finding four dead women. Four different women, all in different stages of de decomposition as well. Dr. Bill Bass, who runs the anthropology department known as the Body Farm out at UT, was on scene pretty much every day from then on. We're trying to find not only any additional bodies, we're trying to find parts of bodies, also trying to find any other evidence that we could that would maybe tie in the crime scene with either one of the four of these victims. And investigators later identified those victims. I'll go ahead and mention them by name. Patricia Rose Anderson, Patricia Johnson, Darlene Smith, and Susan Stone. When they examined these bodies, and one of them I think was just skeletal remains, they noticed they'd been raped, they'd been bound, they'd been strangled. Some of them had ties to prostitution. Tom Husky liked prostitutes. He was very familiar with that neighborhood where most of them worked, which was the Magnolia Avenue part of Knoxville, East Knoxville. He'd grown up in that area. That's near where the zoo is. 
and he would pick up women, often on the streets. There was a particular bar, it's now been torn down, called the Circle Inn. That's a place where he liked to pick up prostitutes. But that's not uncommon in Knoxville. Uh, we, like every city, we have, you know, we have our prostitutes. But Tom liked to take them to places like a zoo barn or Cahaba Lane, have rough sex with them, often leave them there, and never pay them. But because of the bodies that they saw there, and because of Husky's history, ultimately led them to looking at him originally when they found all these bodies, because this wasn't the first time he had frequented that area. This was one of Tom's favorite places to go. It was, as we say, it was uh, remote. It was at the end of a lane under a gigantic advertising signboard along Interstate 40. It was not a place that you ever went. Back behind maybe 100, 150 yards is a church, but how often is that used, right? Maybe once or twice a week. So it was a place Tom knew where he could take women, have his way with them, abuse them, and as we learned, murder them. Let's delve a little bit more into this name, the Zoo Man. You were writing newspaper articles at the time and heavily covered this case. It's a very juicy uh, front pager type of name, but it actually came from the prostitutes that he would be with. That's right. On the street, that is how this man was known. Before it was directly tied to Tom, the prostitutes on the street nicknamed this guy the Zoo Man. He worked with his father at the Knoxville Zoo, and his job was cleaning up after the elephants. So he worked with animals, wild animals, elephants, and he worked at the zoo, and he'd go down Magnolia and he'd pick up prostitutes, tell them that's where he worked, and they got that nickname Zoo Man, because he's always fleecing them out of money or not paying them or threatening to kill them or something of that nature. If you work the street, you knew things like that, and there are very few mysteries on the street. People know who you are, even if it's just a nickname. So there was this kind of menacing character known as the Zoo Man who liked to pick women up. And as it turned out, there were some prostitutes who knew and talked beforehand that he would beat them up. This was before the bodies were discovered. It was known on the street in the summer of 92 that there was a man who could be very cruel. You kind of mentioned a little bit of his description earlier. Let's go back to that. I have an article uh, that you wrote for the Knoxville News Sentinel where you describe him. It was Thomas D. Husky's eyes the rape victim never could forget. Set so close together under those long eyebrows, they were chilling and yet revealing. You got to sit in court when he eventually made it there. Talk a little bit about your first impressions of seeing him, too. Obviously, when you're covering a case like this and you're sitting there about 10 or 15 feet away from a man who's accused of murdering four women, you pay very close attention. You are drawn to watch this person, so I used to do it a lot. And so there were a couple thoughts going through my head. One was I could see how he could be a very frightening person because he does. He has dark eyes and he kind of casts his head down and looks up at you. He's not somebody who holds his head and looks directly at you. He had kind of long, shaggy hair, which could fall over his eyes, so that would make an impression. But in also looking at him, I noticed, I thought he was often, it appeared to me, keeping his face in check. You rarely saw him give away anything. Let's go back to the week that these women's bodies were found, October of 1992. In the days that followed, the police, the Knoxville Volunteer Rescue Squad, would do all these grid searches. If you look in the video, it's wet, it's rainy, it looks like it was a mess. This afternoon, police and the Knoxville Volunteer Rescue Squad conducted a grid search of this wooded area. 
They were looking for any articles that may belong to a woman. They found some lipsticks and undergarments, but are quick to say the items could be unrelated to the deaths because this is a secluded area where police say people are known to go for sex. They were looking for uh, additional fragments of bones. Could there be more than four bodies? They found some lipsticks, some underwear, you know, but they couldn't really tie those back to these victims because it was an area where, where people would go to mess around. So they would go to Husky's house, which would lead them to some other items, but it would also get them in trouble because they didn't do everything exactly the proper way. Right. I think it, it's, it's all sort of moot now because you can't go back and fix history 20-some years later, but they made some mistakes. They made some missteps. Tom's parents lived in Sevier County. I think they lived in a trailer. Tom lived with them. So when they figured out that Tom Husky was a guy they wanted to go talk to, they also wanted to look around and see if maybe there were some items from the victims that they could find maybe in the Husky home. So they went and they got basically a faulty warrant from an individual, an official, so-called magistrate in Sevier County, to sign this piece of paper. It was flawed. It was flawed from the start, but we wouldn't know that for years to come. That would have to be sorted out in the courts. So they go, they get this piece of paper, this warrant signed, they go to the trailer, they serve it. Uh, Tom is pretty um, uh, passive. He cooperates with them. Uh, the Huskies are a very mild-mannered uh, couple, older couple in their 60s. So they're just letting this unfold. And that's when the authorities go in and sure enough, they find items tied to the women. He took mementos, earrings, rings, money, and more importantly, some of the binding cord that had been used to bind some of the victims found at Cahaba Lane. Some of that very same cord was found in Tom's bedroom. So police took Tom into custody, arrested him on some separate solicitation charges. After they take the so-called zoo man into custody for suspect of these four murders and these rapes, this is when things get very interesting. Chief David Davenport, who's the former cold case investigator, described this with us. He got to sit down the very first interview with Husky and talk to him. And that's when he made a pretty weird realization about Husky. First time I talked to him is Tom. And we left the room to get some paperwork, and we come back, and he was Kyle. Tom is no dummy. Uh, he had a lively imagination, as we would learn as, as the years went by. When they first tried to talk to him, they were holding him in the jail in Knox County, he wouldn't say anything. But something must have been going on in old Tom's mind, because, at least this is my opinion looking back, he had decided to pursue, I think, the multiple personalities angle. Or maybe he really does have them, you know, we'll let you decide. But when Dave went to talk to Tom, uh, I believe there was an invitation from Tom to talk. And so Dave goes, and keep in mind, past attempts had been fruitless. Tom wouldn't yield anything. Suddenly Dave goes down to talk to Tom, and it's a different person. And from Kyle, he progressed to Philip Dax was an aristocrat. He had the, had the voice down pretty good. He, could have been an actor. It's like a whole new person is sitting there in the jail cell with him. The body language is different, the voice is different, the whole mannerisms are different. Demanding, kind of a bully. And that's when Dave realizes 
that this is very different, and Tom announces that it's Kyle who is about to talk, somebody named Kyle. He doesn't know anybody named Tommy Husky, but he is Kyle, and he's ready to talk about the murders. So Kyle was actually just one of, I think, three different personalities. He had Kyle was kind of an angry, mean version of Husky. He also had a British accent at one point, who he called Philip Dax. And then he also had a feminine kind of personality as well, that Dave got to kind of witness all of these. But ultimately, he does confess as Kyle to these murders. Yeah, Kyle talks about how he killed these women. He's not down to the cross your T's and dot your I's facts exact about how he did it, but he clearly says, yeah, I did it. I thought it was all act. Kyle does talk about killing these women. There's a little bit of conversation with, you mentioned Philip Dax, who's kind of deferential and says, oh yes, Tommy. And then there's Timothy, who is the gay personality who they just see a little bit, but it's mainly Kyle who dominates the conversation. As a reporter, during this time, when you're writing these stories for the paper, I can't imagine what's going on in your mind. First, you have this crime scene near a church, right off a highway, that turns from one body to four bodies. And now you have the suspect. And now it turns out that this suspect has multiple personalities. I feel like this had to be the story of that time that people were interested in knowing about. It was, I got here in 1993, which was right almost about the time that a grand jury indicted Tom Husky for these murders. So, and my job was to be the court reporter for the newspaper. So the timing was good for me in terms of that this case was now about to enter my venue, if you will. I knew about it as soon as I got here. People were like, well, one of the cases you're gonna be covering is this case. We have these four women who have been murdered. The defendant is somebody who was known to uh, rough up women before. So it was very intriguing to be this reporter who gets to cover this case. You enjoy covering the courts and they say, oh, by the way, this guy says he has multiple personalities. So going into the court when he was indicted by this federal jury, you're going to go cover this. From an outside perspective, you might think, all right, they've got a confession. They've got this evidence from his home, but it really was not going to be that easy. And both sides brought some pretty big players up to bat with the prosecution and the defense. Maybe it's overstating a little bit, but it, it's fair to say this was almost a clash of the titans with Tom Husky in the middle. This was a death penalty case. The district attorney general, Randy Nichols, uh, had announced that he was going to seek to execute Tom if Tom was convicted at trial. So the stakes are incredibly high at that point. Because of that, Tom was entitled to two lawyers, basically, because the complexity of a death penalty case is, is, is much greater than a regular uh, case. So the judge had appointed, honestly, two of the very best defense attorneys we have in Knox County and in East Tennessee. Greg Isaacs, who was a young, up-and-coming, ambitious, smart, good-looking, dynamic lawyer, and Herb Monsier, senior uh, attorney, uh, wise, uh, wily, lots of calluses on his hands, knew the courts. The two of them were going to represent Tom, and they represented him very, very well. Here's what defense attorney Herb Monsier told reporters after getting the case. 
The court called me and asked me if I would accept the appointment uh, in a significant case, and it's the duty of every attorney when called upon to do this to do so. Then on the other side of the aisle, you had the DA himself, Randy Nichols, who had only recently been a judge, but really wanted to be the prosecutor, who was going to take this case on personally. So it is really rare that uh, the DA, him or herself, would take on a case, but you know what, it's kind of sexy from the DA's perspective to get involved in this case because you are in the most high-profile case going on at that time. You are the DA and you tell the public, I'm taking this case on and I'm going to win and we're going to get this man sent to a death row. It was the first time, of course, that I had been called upon to decide whether or not we were going to try to kill somebody. We had a whole bunch of charges that were returned against Tom. We've talked about the murders. He was accused of murdering four women. But before that, several other women had come forward and say, hey, this guy kidnapped me off the street and forced me to have sex and brutalized me. We had several women like that who survived. So we had those cases as well. A tactical decision was made by the DA's office. Well, let's start with some of these uh, rapes and kidnappings that didn't involve death. We'll save the death cases for later. That'll be the last thing we get to. But let's take Tom to court first and get convictions on the, some of these rapes and kidnappings. So Tom Husky is tried for several of the rapes and kidnappings and convicted. Now it's time for the murder trial, which will prove to be much tougher. This case went on and on and on, and here's an example why I say that. So the grand jury indicts Tom Husky in 1993. 1993. We had court hearings constantly from 1993 for the next six years. We also had a couple trials because, as I said, we had some of the rape and kidnapping trials. Those were first. But all along, we had hearing after hearing after hearing. I think I spent one winter just basically in court on this case before we got to the murder trial, which was in 1999. So it just went on and on and on. It, <laughs> it got to be where, you know, there were several years. It was unfortunate the victims had to go through all of this. Husky went through all of this. We all went through this kind of ordeal, unfortunately. Let's talk a little bit about the defense side of things. As a defense attorney, you get to have a little bit different relationship with who you're representing. And we got to speak with Herb a little bit about his thoughts on Tom Husky. And he said there was actually some kind of sensitive moments he saw from Tom. I remember Tom having a picture of himself and his father with an elephant that he shared with us. It was, was very moving. I think he kind of felt like Tom had a little bit of a low intelligence. They would actually argue insanity. If they were going to go for multiple personality, they also had to explore Tom's personality and his intellect. And they made the argument that he was really not a very smart guy, that he was essentially stunted mentally, that he had been a victim of abuse himself as a young man. And uh, they had to sort of uh, present what they could in terms of thinking that this was a guy who was at a disadvantage. So how could he have done all these horrible things when he was clearly not a man uh, you know, uh, of average or above average intelligence? Prosecution would have disagreed with that, of course. You saw a lot of heat in the courtroom from both Randy Nichols and Herb. In his closing arguments, Monsieur even channeled 
one of the personalities to prove a point. And I walked over and got on the witness stand and says, My name's Kyle. I hate Tommy. I want to get rid of Tommy. I'll do anything to get rid of him. I hate him. Like that, and then got up off the witness stand and says, Now that's your witness. You believe that? Were you sitting there when he did that? Oh, I was, yeah, I remember that. It was, it was kind of a startling moment. You know, it's probably not really a good idea to yell in court because it kind of scares everybody, but there were a couple moments during the murder trial where we did have yelling. Herb was one of them. He wanted to underscore to the jury who could not hear Kyle, and Kyle didn't come out, unfortunately. I was always hopeful that Kyle would come out during the trial. But Herb wanted the jury to sort of get a sense of the force of Kyle. But he wasn't the only one that yelled. Randy would also scream a little bit in court because he had to fight against this insanity plea. Randy is a passionate man. He's a great orator. He's retired now. But he was always fun to listen to because he had a great voice. Uh, he sounded like a preacher. He would convert you. And he got wrapped up in this case. And there was a point where he really probably kind of went too far in terms of being animated and exhorting the jury to convict this man who has killed these four women. Stand up, Foreman. Stand up and look at him and say you are guilty of every charge. So if you're sitting in the courtroom and you're a juror, this is a lot to take in. Yeah, it <laughs> it's a lot. And it's a pretty big job. For the jury, they have a man's life in their hands, you know, and, and some very complicated things. They've heard from Nichols, they've heard from Monsieur and Isaacs, they've looked at this evidence that actually was pretty much considered flawed because of that improper warrant. So what happens next for this jury, this decision that they ultimately end up making? Keep in mind, this was a jury brought in from Davidson County. The reason for that was it was such a big case that we basically had decided you can't get an Ox County jury to hear this case. So this was a win for the defense. They wanted a potentially friendly jury pool. Davidson County is not East Tennessee. East Tennessee is a pretty conservative place. It's a Republican-dominated place. It's a hang-em-high kind of place. And Davidson County is not like that. Just outside of Nashville, for those who aren't familiar yeah, with exactly. Tennessee. It's Nashville. It's the biggest metro area in Tennessee. The uh, defense was successful in convincing the judge, let's go, go get a pool from Davidson County. They didn't know anything about this case. I ended up talking to them when it was all over with very nice, smart, sharp group of people. The jury forewoman had serious questions about the state's case pretty early on. The defense convinced her pretty well that Tom had uh, some kind of a mental defect. So pretty much they're unable to come up with a decision between the 12 of them. There were some that believed Randy and the state's proof. There were some more inclined to believe um, what the defense was putting on and the questions the defense was raising. They could not reach a decision. They hung. They probably deliberated, I would guess, a day and a half or so. They tried and they just couldn't reach a decision. You can imagine. <laughs> All of us have been in this process for more than six years, basically. Here we are at this moment to decide whether Tom Mahusky is going to be convicted of four murders and whether he's going to get the death penalty. And the jury says, sorry, we can't come to a decision. It was extremely deflating for everybody involved. This one reads that we have deliberated at length and cannot reach a unanimous decision. Jurors sent word to the judge just after 11 o'clock this morning that they were a hung jury. 
While they agreed Husky was guilty, they were split in half about his sanity. Six jurors wanted to find him not guilty by reason of insanity. The other six believed he was sane beyond a reasonable doubt. And essentially, the case just sort of fell apart after that as time went on. The state of Tennessee wanted to try him again for murder, but it just wasn't really going to happen. The seizure of the items from the trailer was ruled to have been improper. So there goes the twine that was used to bind the women. There goes the jewelry that belonged to at least one of the murder victims. That's now gone. That's important. There's never been a lawyer, a trial lawyer, uh, that after it's over that there's a hundred things you would have done differently. Uh, and yes, I would have made some different decisions, some other strategies. Uh, I've, I've, I've lived it a lot, the truth is. Uh, I, uh, I was not satisfied uh, with, uh, with, what I, with my work. And if I had to redo it, I would have presented it uh, in a different manner. It's unfortunate that the victims got no justice. It's unfortunate that so much time and effort and money was spent on this case. Uh, it was at the time in the 1990s the single most expensive case in Tennessee. It cost hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars for all the experts, all the scientific work, everything involved, all the hours that the lawyers put in. That all was, you could argue, for not. But it also remains, you know, one of the more interesting cases that East Tennessee has seen. We haven't had another multiple personality case that I can think of. What keeps him in prison is his prior convictions for the rapes and the kidnappings. And that's where he is today. He's in a Tennessee prison. He will never serve a day in his life for the murders, but he will be there for those, those rapes and those kidnappings. He's coming up close to age 60. He will probably stay in prison for many more years. Uh, until he finally flattens out his sentence. As for those four women, though, no one else was ever convicted for their murders and likely no one ever will. That's right. They're forgotten by time, except for people like us who remember their names and talk about them. Some of them left behind children who are now adults. I wonder sometimes if they think of their mothers at all. I wonder what goes through their heads, but it's just kind of something that's been left to gather with the rest of the dust of history. We move on and nothing will ever happen to give them justice. And decades later, it's a case that retired DA Randy Nichols still thinks about and he still stands by that Husky was guilty. I never had any doubt. I think that he's at exactly at the right place where he needs to be and he needs to be incarcerated. And in my view, he should never be put back into a free society. I believe him to be a very dangerous man.